Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello one and all and a very warm welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast. With a difference, I'm Joe Haddo and it's great to have you with us and wherever you are in the world, I hope you're safe and well. Our rather snazzy tote bags are selling like hotcakes, ladies and gents. Thanks to everyone who's purchased one already. And if you'd like one to pimp up your book buying, then you can find a link to the store on our socials. But enough of the hard sell and on with the episode, because today I'm joined by two fabulous writers who'll be going head-to-head in a war of the words a little later on. My first guest has taught for Arvon, Curtis Brown Creative, Falmouth University, and in prisons, and is the author of four books, including the Sunday Times bestseller, The Last Act of Love. She's a great advocate of reading and writing, and is here to tell us about her latest book, Write It All Down. I am, of course, talking about the wonderful Cathy Rensenbrink. Hello, welcome to you, Cathy. Hello, Joe, and thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. It's so lovely to see you after far too long. Uh, And my second guest is a filmmaker, novelist, Zen Buddhist priest. She's the award-winning author of three novels, one of which, A Tale for the Time Being, was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize back in 2013. She is affiliated with the Everyday Zen Foundation and teaches creative writing at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. Here to tell us about her latest novel and a brand new piece of non-fiction, Time Code of a Face, it's Ruth Azeki. Hello, Ruth. Ruth, welcome to you. Hello, Joe. Wonderful to be here and wonderful to see you, Kathy. Isn't it nice? Yes, because you're old mates, aren't you, you two? <laughs> well, right. I'm a long-time fan of Ruth's and then we met recently um, and I interviewed her and it was just wondrous. So, yes, it's very nice to be here. It was here. a wonderful <laughs> evening. Thank you, Kathy. That was a wonderful evening. And an actual in-person evening, Ruth. Remember them. I, it was a little disconcerting. You know, I had to get on an airplane that, that you know, flies over the Pacific Ocean, I mean, the Atlantic Ocean. And um, yeah. yeah, actually, actually was in London. It all just seems like a dream now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's lovely to have you both here uh, virtually. And over the next uh, 40 minutes or so, we're going to talk about your brilliant new books. We're going to talk about writing, inspirations, what you've been reading and enjoying recently. And of course, we're going to do the book off where each of you gets three minutes to tell us about a book that you love, that you think we should all read and add to our to-be-read pile. We'll come to that very shortly. Firstly, though, Cathy, I've been very jealous recently because I've seen pictures of you sea swimming with the brilliant author and former book off guest and friend of mine, Will Memure, and I'm sat here in London looking at you two jumping in the sea thinking, ugh, if only I could be there. <laughs> well, you have to come down to Cornwall and jump in with us. <laughs> have to be You're part of the welcome. Cornwall gang. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm also very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> not, not only was I a little bit jealous, I was also very impressed, actually, uh, because you know February is cold. Well, um, it, I've found it very invigorating, actually, getting in the sea. I must say, it's out of character, uh, as in it's not. It's part of the you know, the new me. <laughs> I think anybody that had known me a few years ago, including all my former selves, would be incredibly surprised by the departure my life has taken. You know, no alcohol, and I'm always swimming in the sea and trying to go running. Like, what's happened? What's going um, on? Yeah, it's very expanding, actually. And I do love, 
I mean, I seriously love being on the beach and the, there's something very sort of soul mending about just watching the people and their kids and their dogs. Um, yeah. I kind of particularly like it when it's, it's sort of out of season. It, it really, it lifts the heart, definitely. I'm a big, big sea swimmer. Uh, I mean, not every day or every week because I don't live by the sea, but I grew up by the sea. So I'm a, I'm a big champion of it. Do you like a, do you like a dip in the sea, Ruth, where you can or a bit of wild swimming? I, I do, I do, but that sounds awfully cold, Cornwall in February. It's, it's brave, isn't it? Especially Cornwall in February without alcohol. It, it, it sounds very, very cold. I don't know whether I'd be able to do that. But um, I mean, yeah. I have, I find it, I find swimming and writing really interesting. And I do think, because I, you know, I kind of never really feel like writing and then enjoying it once I'm doing it. And it's a bit the same with the swimming. The First minute or so is horrific, and then it's really quite nice. And I just re- keep reminding myself of that. So I have this little mantra that gets me in. Would you like to know what it is? Yes, please. <laughs> please, I, I need it. <laughs> I say to myself, I don't have to like it. I just have to do it. <laughs> but I charge in. Brilliant. I will remember that, and I will every time I sit down to write, I am going to repeat that. <laughs> But I envy you that it only takes a minute because it takes me a lot longer when I sit down to write to, you know, to actually Writing start. longer. Yeah, the minute is the swimming. But, um, I, but I do find it's just getting over that bump, isn't it? With loads of yeah, stuff, actually. I've really worked out that it is that, you know, as they say with yoga, it's the hardest thing to get on the mat. Or, yes. I'm really enjoying exploring that idea that, yeah. it, that, that's, the, that that's the thing. So the initial hurdle... And from then on, it's much easier. For, I mean, I can't think of anything I do that doesn't kind of fit in that pattern. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> in, including including getting out of bed in the morning sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that too. <laughs> no, it's really true, and it's actually it's actually less than a minute. It's really only just that moment of transition. And if you can just make it through that, then you're fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talking of mantras, and indeed, you know, that first minute of writing or however long it takes to get into it Kathy um we should talk about your new book write it all down because this is sort of what the book is about it's a it's a sort of practical but inspiring guide to writing um and what I loved was one of the central messages or this is what I took from it anyway is for writers to sort of almost take themselves seriously and stop sort of saying oh I don't you know actually take yourself seriously and write so where did this this idea come from to write this particular book well, I mean, it's very much it's a response to people who said to me that I should do it. So very, you know, one of the lots of amazing things happened to me because I wrote my first book, The Last Act of Love. And one of them was that I was asked to teach. And pretty much as soon as I started doing it, I just loved it. And I had this real, you know, I mean, almost spiritual sense that this was what I was supposed to be doing. This I'm supposed to be here talking to this person about their life and how they should try writing it down. Um, and so I would do it and people would say to me, you should write some of this stuff down. <laughs> and I'd say like, oh, I've got other books to write because I was stuck writing my second book and then my third book. And then I said, I'm always stuck writing a book. <laughs> and um, I said, well, if I ever get unstuck writing all these books that I've got to write, maybe I will. And then I did. And, um, and it, it, it has been my most joyous writing experience. And I think it's because the reader's very in very close. The reader is also the writer. So it feels like, I mean, I think all my writing, actually, the more I get into it and realise what I'm doing, because I'm not always conscious of what I'm doing, it's a conversation opener. I'm just trying to start, I'm trying to have a conversation. I'm trying to start a conversation. I'm just trying to sort of stand at the edge of life and have a conversation about it. Um, but this one, more than any of them, the person I'm speaking to, I really know who they are, which is just mm. somebody that wants a bit of encouragement to... Right. And I think culturally, um, and certainly anywhere I've ever been, I, I mean, I just, I just hate this stuff that only a certain type of person can write, that you need a particular type of education, that you need a particular type of background, even that you have to be good at grammar, or you have to be able to punctuate properly, or that you have to be good at it. You know, that idea that I hate that poisonous idea that, you know, that people, you know, in a snide way when people say mm. like, oh, Maybe people have got a book in them, and most of the time it should stay there. It just it just drives me wild. I just I just find it really difficult. So um, it just feels I'm just doing the opposite of that. Really, I'm just saying, mm. come on, give it a go, have a go, do it anyway. Don't I mean? There's loads of things to worry about, but just I like kind of slightly forget all those and just have a crack at it. That's my that's my thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, also because you know, writing really 
changed your life, didn't it, as well? So this is a this is an important thing to you personally. Oh, it, it, I mean, it is reading and writing. I think the twins, mm. twins of each other, to me, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, both kind of completely, completely central. Yeah. Complete. I mean, sometimes I think maybe a bit too much. You know, I could. <laughs> I could probably do to inject a bit of life into my reading and writing. <laughs> but, you know, that overrated thing. <laughs> Try and like live in a way that isn't connected to the page. Ah! <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't worry about that. <laughs> um, I want to come back and, and talk to you in a moment, Cathy, just about a couple of the things that I sort of garnered from your book and um uh, some things I know the listeners will definitely want to hear about if they haven't got to this book already. Um, but Ruth, if I could bring you in, because I um, I got sent two books of yours, which is just a, a, a huge treat, because I thought I was only getting one. But actually, what I got was your wonderful latest novel, which I have here, and it's a lovely, chunky book, isn't it? Um, the Book of Form and Emptiness, which we will talk about shortly. But f- I also got sent Time Code of a Face, which is this wonderful short piece of non-fiction that you have just published or that Canongate have just published. And it's you literally relate three excruciating hours of looking at your own face in the mirror. And I just wondered, my first question to you is, why did you do this? <laughs> well, you know, this really ties into what Kathy was talking about. Um, you know, it was desperation. I had um, I had been approached by an editor um, of a small independent press, Restless Books, um, here in the U.S., um, with this invitation to write a, an essay about my face, right? And I was going to be one of several authors doing it. And um, and the other two authors, Chris Abani and Tosh Aw, are are brilliant authors, and I love them. And and anything they do, I kind of want to do. Um, and apparently they had already said yes. And um, and then also in the letter of invitation, um, the editor had sent me a short Borges quote um, about the face. And and I love Borges. You know, I I, I just really I, I was very inspired by that that quote. And, and so, yeah. it, you know, because of all of this, I foolishly said yes. And um, and then, you know, we arranged, you know, a, a timeline and a deadline and then I proceeded to procrastinate for about a year and a half. And the, you know, the deadline, I I was getting these very polite little emails from the editor and was ignoring them. And finally, in desperation, I, you know, sat down to do it. And and I just thought, this is a nightmare. This is a disaster. What have I, what have I said, you know, what have I agreed to do? Um, And, and so uh, it happened that just about then I had read this article um, by a Harvard art uh, art history professor um, named Jennifer Roberts, and she had talked about um, in this article the benefits of long, prolong, you know, prolonged observation. And okay. she sends her students, her art history students, to go and sit in front of a work of art for three hours, and she's designed this to be a painfully long period of time, um, and and to make a kind of time code of their observations during that period. And of course, what happens is that you do get bored and you do get irritated, but you also, little by little, sort of calm down and start to really see things that you would never have noticed if you'd just been passing by quickly. Um, and, and so I had just read that article, and I thought, well, you know, if I can bear this, this might be an interesting, you know, an experiment, a thought experiment. And so I did, you know, and I'm a meditator, so I'm used to sitting for long periods of time. And um, so I set up a mirror in front of my, you know, where I usually meditate. And I you know, sat down and, um, and you know, sort of balanced my laptop on my lap and proceeded to do exactly that. Just sit there for three hours and make a time code of the observations, the things that I noticed as I was sitting, you know, in front of the mirror looking at my face. And of course, those observations, some of them were about my face, but some of them were also thoughts that were kind of thoughts and memories that were triggered by some small aspect of my face. And I used that as a skeleton, you know, in this, you know, thank goodness it's short, um, you know, in this short uh, little book, right, um, to kind of pin other little, you know, um, it, sort of what little mini essays on, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and and so that's how the book. But it was really, and it was just out of sheer desperation that I decided to do this. And it was, and three hours. Those, you know, were some of the most painful three hours I've ever spent in my life. Yeah, I was so happy when they were over. But it was interesting. It was very. <laughs> but, yeah, very I was going to say, were you glad of the experience though, yes. having done it? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I was. Um, you know, I felt like I had really um, done something difficult, um, but also something that was was interesting. And, you know, the most, you know, I mean what happened was that all of these sort of, some of them quite painful, but also some of them quite joyous um, memories started to come back to me about my family. You know, I started to see in my face, my, my grandparents, my parents, my, you know, my mother's cheekbones, my father's, you know, eyebrows and forehead, you know, and, and then of course that triggered memories of them. They're both dead. So, you know, that was both sad, but also very beautiful, you know, and, um, and, and, you know, and, and sometimes it was, you know, I mean, often it was very funny, you know, the kinds of things that I was remembering and noticing, um, noticing things about my own kind of, you know, the, the sort of history of my own vanity, you know, <laughs> starting from when I was, yes. starting from when I was, you know, a, a child, you know, when did yeah. I first notice that I even had a face, you know, um, and, and so just kind of noticing all of these things and, um, and after the three hours, I remember I went outside and I went to the park, Tompkins Square Park in the East Village of New York. And I went out and I got a coffee, an iced coffee, and I sat on a bench and just watched people, you know. And it was amazing because they all had faces, you know. Every single one of them had a face. Mm-hmm. And every single one of them, therefore, had a complex relationship with that face. Right. Every single one of them had, you know, their parents and their grandparents and their great grandparents is like incredible ancestry sort of in the face of the moment. Right. And and it was just an incredibly sort of moving experience to see that, to realize that, you know, that we all have these faces and we all have these very profound and complex relationships with them, you know, with mm. this sort of emblem of our identity. Um, and, and so it was it was very, very interesting. I was so glad I had done it. Yeah. And I have to say, having read it, I'm not sure I want to sit in front of my face for three hours. But the idea of sort of sitting in front of a piece of art, for example, yeah. like you just mentioned, and that... Yeah essay that you read or the article that you read that 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 sort of sparked this that does strangely appeal to me um have you done that that? i loved reading it and it made me want to do it joe did it yeah yeah your your face uh, yeah yeah reading reading ruth's three hours on her face made me think i'm gonna have three hours on my face so it's interesting that you didn't do you think that means you're more evolved or i'm more evolved Not to immediately make it competitive rather than artistic. I don't know. I just, I don't know. It's not that it didn't put me off it. It just, but actually, I suppose for me, the, I liked the idea behind it, Ruth, and I loved the Mm. fact that you'd done it. Mm, and that mm, made me mm. think actually there's it, it's the it's the sort of the three hours and mm-hmm. the time coding of that, that that I took away from it that I want to do yeah yeah um yeah, yeah. and actually maybe yeah, I don't know what that's projecting Kathy from me r- that I'd rather sort of stare at something someone else has made than well I mean someone else made me I suppose but like you know yeah. you know uh, um yeah I think it's I don't an know, introspection ex- you know it's sort of are you an introspective person are you an extrovert or an introvert I mean there's a are you know are you you know are you the kind of person who's drawn to writing memoir or you know or or not you know um so I think that there's a kind of an orientation too that that is different maybe it's now partly, that's interesting yeah because that is in- that's interesting because I don't think I would ever be drawn to write memoir like I, right. I I think about fiction I think in fiction and I think in sort of like children's fiction mm-hmm. that's where my head's at so yeah mm-hmm. and, and but whereas you Kathy are are a bit more memoiry maybe well I'm I'm endlessly fascinated in the self as a source I think both not, I mean not just like for me but for people in general and so yeah. I, I haven't done it yet but even though I haven't done it I felt my relationship with my face has changed since reading it slightly because I'm anticipating doing it. So whenever, and it's really nice. I mean, one of the things it made me feel was just that we get trapped in this awful modern consumerist thing, don't we, of sort of slagging ourselves off. So actually reading that book 
in in all its honesty made me think like maybe i should like my face a bit more <laughs> maybe i can see <laughs> yeah. the interesting things about my face maybe yeah. i can because you know i do look like my dad and i adore my dad but then that also means as he says i've got this big round irish head <laughs> and of course you know i've always wanted a sort of a sl- we want to we want what we haven't got don't we i've always exactly. envied petite darker you know women with a sort of angular bones and stuff (laughs) but anyway I've been looking at my face and I've been thinking about my dad and I've been I've got a couple of smallish scars and every time I look at them I think when I do that three hour thing I'm going to write the story of that scar so even before I've written anything but that's that again that's kind of what literature does doesn't it whether or not you have a written response to it or do anything Mm. formal to it it just somehow it just kind of joins in doesn't it but I think that's the sort of writing I love to read where I then feel I'm having some kind of mental dance with it all the time yeah yeah so yeah yeah, yeah. I love See, what it's you sparking conversation cells. already Ruth yeah <laughs> <laughs> I loved what you say about you know about I I do am you know just fascinated by the relationship that human beings have to this notion of self you know, and of course, in, in Buddhism, we talk about no self, you know, we, there's a kind of an understanding that there, that the self is a story, right? It's really, it's, that, that's what it is. It's a story. And, and do we relate to it as a story or do we relate to, in other words, a story that's malleable and can change, you know, mm-hmm. that can have different versions. Earlier, Kathy, you talked about, you know, you talked about yourself in, a, in the plural. You talked about yourselves, <laughs> right? And, and yeah. as soon as I heard that, I, I just thought, yes, that's right. And, and I think that, um, you know, to, to some extent, too, going back to fiction, you know, that's to me is what fiction is. It's, it's a, you know, that every character, even the most, you know, the most diabolical villain, you know, is to some, you know, in some degree, an aspect of self. You have to find that villain inside you, you know, that villainous little you know, part of yourself, um, hopefully little, but, um, you know, <laughs> and, mm. and, um, and explore that in order to really understand who your character is. And I, so that's, I think, you know, I think that's, that's what, me, that's why the exploration of self is so important, you know, because it, it mm. helps my, it helps my fiction. Um, I completely agree. And I find it interesting with my novel, which has a few point of view characters and people, ask me like is this is he based on anyone is she based on someone are they based on someone and sometimes guess who they're based on and it's like well I mean I hope they're all proper fictional creations but equally like they're all me obviously (laughs) I mean they're all me with the exception of one of them there is one person that I didn't feel was me but again I didn't give him a point of view chapter I couldn't I couldn't penetrate him um whereas all the rest are kind of to a certain you know to a certain extent, they're not me, but they're kind of, they are me. I've, we've mm. merged in some kind of odd way. Um, <laughs> and that, you know that saying about walking a mile in someone else's shoes? It's sort of that as well, isn't it? And uh, I think yeah. one of the fascinating things about writing fiction, again, is you kind of slightly, you have to put on something else to create this fictional character. And then you walk around with them a bit and then you kind of take them off. But maybe they leave something with you and you put something into them and... Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, endlessly, yeah. endlessly interesting to me. That yeah. makes me think about some research that I um, read recently about psychological research about people who read fiction, you know, and um, who test much higher on empathy exams afterwards. Um, you know, and I think it's exactly that. It, it's that, you know, what fiction does is it teaches you to sort of slip into the, you know, to the skin and the body of, of others, right, and the mind of others. And, um and and yet it's not really another too. It, it's it's you know it's it's to some extent. I love the the way you're talking about the melding because I think that's exactly what it is. It's it's you know there's part of the self in there as well. And then of course the reader joins that right, and the reader then projects their selves into whatever it is that you know the the book that you know that that you've written. Um, mm-hmm. And which is why I really think that books are a collaboration. They're not you know I mean yes we we're the author we're the ones who you know started this started the conversation but you know the the conversation relies on you know on you know two people and um and and each conversation as a result will be completely different so we think there's one book but in fact there's not there's as many books as there are readers Mm. yeah I love that and I find that so exciting that um 
And then I love it when they, you know, the readers talk back as well to me and the book. And I do think it's their book. I never, sometimes people say like, oh, I thought this was I wrong. It's like nothing you thought was wrong. I have a, a, a sh- you know, several shelves here of books by writers and yours is up there. And, <laughs> you know, and these are the books that when, you know, I'm feeling lonely and feeling, mm. you know, just having whatever self-doubt I go to my shelf and I find one of my friends and I you know pull that book off and read it and I feel inspired and which is exactly how I you know feel when I read your books so wow oh that's wondrous yeah and it is that it is that sense of community isn't it fellowship readers writers humans fragile people and again that sight thing this is what I say sometimes to people I'm teaching your mentors don't they don't have to be alive. They don't necessarily have to be real. They could be fictional. But if they are real people, like if they are real authors, you don't actually have to know them even to benefit from them. Um, to kind of just almost like just take that leap of faith, that leap of imagination. And even if you are lonely in your real and actual life, which lots of us often are, then you you have all this at your fingertips, all this sort of compassion, compa- compa- compassionate companionship is mm-hmm. is kind of available to, to everyone if you sort of, you know, believe in the book, I guess. Now, Ruth, I want to talk about your latest novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness. You cover so many topics in this novel. I mean, neurodiversity, protest, grief, mental health. But at its heart, this is a novel about stories. It's a novel about community. Perhaps you could just tell us about Benny and set up his story for us. Well, it's the story of a young boy um, named Benny O, um, who at the age of 13 loses his father in a, um, his father is a, a, a Japanese uh, jazz clarinetist um, and uh, who, who dies in a really stupid and, and tragic way. Um, he's hit by a chicken delivery truck in a back alley when he's drunk and, and has kind of passed out in the alley. And, um, and, and so the, the book starts with this, you know, with this, this moment um, and, uh, what happens subsequently is that, um, you know, Benny, um, after his dad dies, he starts to hear his father's voice calling him. Right. And, um, and that, you know, lasts for a little while. And, and then it's, it's almost like his ears have become sensitive to, you know, the, the voices in the world, you know, the ambient voices in the world. And he starts to hear, um, objects speaking to him. Right. And, um, and this is in sometimes very disturbing to him, sometimes not. Um, his mother, Annabelle, um, is trying very hard to support the family. Um, and, you know, and she works as a, as a media monitor, right? So she's also listening to, you know, she's listening to radio, she's listening to television, she's reading new, you know, newspapers and clipping. Um, and, and so the, the world is just a very cacophonous place uh, for Benny. And, um, and what he discovers is um, a certain kind of refuge at the, at the local public library, right? And it's a big library. And so he starts to skip school and hang out at the library because, of course, the library is a place that's filled with objects that speak, you know, because, of course, books speak to us, right? But the objects, books, you know, know their place on the shelf, right? And they, they know to be quiet and to speak in their library voices. And so this is a very, you know, soothing place for Benny to be. And he finds a carol up in a, you know, in a kind of, you know, secluded nook of the library and, and kind of sets up camp there and, um, and, and starts to meet the other denizens of the library because, of course, all good libraries have, you know, have people who, you know, sort of almost secretly inhabit them. Um, and he meets, uh, he meets a young, uh, you know, a young artist who's, um, who sort of lives on the street named the Aleph. Um, and uh, she's kind of a performance artist who makes these strange installations that wind through the library's collection, you know, that people then follow. Um, 
he meets a, um, a Slovenian um, poet philosopher named the Bottle Man, uh, or and his other name is Slavoj, and um, who who is a poet, right? And um, and really teaches Benny, uh, you know, what it means to hear voices, right? Um, and then he meets, but he meets this other, he meets another presence there. Um, he meets a book. Right, and it's it's not just any book; it's his book, um, and Benny and his book start to start a dialogue. Right, they start to talk to each other, and so the entire book of form and emptiness is actually being narrated by the book of form and emptiness. Right, and so and and it's it's set up as a dialogue between um, Benny and his book. Right. Um, and, you know, together and, and you know, uh, it, it's mostly the book that's doing the, the telling. Right. But Benny's listening. And anytime the book goes wrong, you know, goes off in the wrong direction or perhaps, you know, um, gives too much information. Right. Benny intervenes, you know, and interrupts and um, and, you know, they have a discussion and and the story goes on. Right. And so it's uh, you know, it's, it's this idea that um, you know, earlier, you know, uh, Kathy, you said, you know, everyone's got a book in them. You know, I, I think that's true, you know, and, and the book, in fact, makes this point, right? Every boy has a book in, you know, every boy has a book in him. It's just not that every boy will take the time to actually learn about and talk to the book that's inside him, right? Every girl has a book inside her. But, you know, um, these days it's, it's, you know, it's harder and harder to hear when your book starts talking to you, right? Um, and and so that's the sort of setup of the you know of the of the story, um, this this dialogue between um, between Benny and his book, and he finds, um, you know, he finds a, a certain kind of um, solace and support, um, you know, in this community that he finds in the library. Now, I've recently been working on a project with the BBC looking at the importance and the brilliance of libraries. And your love of libraries shines through in this book. Do you have a, a good library story for us that you could share? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, uh, I, I have I feel like I have so many, but oh, gosh, which one? OK, well, I'll just choose an early memory, an early library story. Um, when I was in grade school, we were doing, um, in my English class, we were doing, a, you know, a, a, a section on poetry, right? And, um, and we, had to, we were given the assignment to write a poem. And this was in the, you know, this was in the 1960s, I guess, right? And we'd been doing some kind of contemporary poetry and as well as classical poetry. But we were given the assignment to write any kind of, you know, to write a poem. And I just remember thinking, I cannot do this. I don't know how to do this. This is impossible. And I went to the library and was, um, you know, in the stacks. And I think I was lying on the floor. <laughs> In the, I think I was in fourth grade, and and I was lying on the floor, um, you know, just thinking about this, uh, this, um, you know, this assignment, and um, and I started reading, you know, because I was lying on the floor, my head was on the side, right, and I started reading the um, uh, titles of the books, you know, that were right in front of me, as I, you know, because I was lying in the stacks, right, and I was reading the titles of the books, and they started to come together in a really interesting way. And so I started writing them down on a piece of paper, just the titles as they appeared, you know, on the shelf. And and I looked at them and realized that they were a poem. You know, they, they had made a poem. And so it was a, it was a I, I didn't understand, I didn't know that found poetry was in fact something that, you know, that people did, but this was a found poem. And I think what I learned from that was the power of disparate elements coming together, right, to make something even bigger than, you know, than the, the two elements themselves. So it was this idea of, you know, dis of combinations of things, also of kind of serendipity and randomness, right, um, and the power of browsing at a library, right? Just, just, you know, the, the fact that your eyes can just, you know, um, you know, just sort of move along a line of, you know, spines, right? And read the titles and ideas start to come into your mind unbidden, 
right? You, and and um, this is something we've lost. This is something you know that that you know that did you know search engines and algorithms um, sort of have deprived of us of. Um, I mean, I think you know we have other we have other things that we can do because of search engines and algorithms, but not this. And um, and so there was a you know it, it was so tactile too. You know, every book was a different you know, different size, different shape, different color, different texture. Um, there was something in that that was just really powerful. Anyway, so I wrote all of these um, these titles down and I edited them, of course, because one edits. <laughs> and um, even at, even in the fourth grade, one edits. And, um, and I turned it in and I remember being terrified that I was going to, you know, that my teacher was going to recognize some of these titles and um you know and uh i'd get in trouble for plagiarizing right um but that was another lesson i learned at the time which is that writers steal right um so <laughs> it was a very you know it was a very uh steal but you know then you make it your own right yeah um and, yeah, yeah. and so this was a just a, a kind of pivotal moment i think in my you know my career as a writer in fourth grade <laughs> I love that. What about you, Kathy? We got a good library story. I'm sure. You I know. mean, I just I adore libraries, and the um, so growing up, it was Snaith Library, which is a really tiny library in the village next to where I grew up in Yorkshire. But um, and I used to the kids' bit was on the top floor, but I'd done it like I'd read it all, apart from you know like the books about how to build stuff, which I didn't really wasn't really interested in. So I'd done it. So. I was allowed, I had to have a special dispensation to have an adult ticket and be allowed downstairs to the adult books. Oh, wow. Uh, so, which I still, to be honest, that's probably the, you know, when you hear about people being given the freedom of a city or whatever, I, I still think about getting my adult library ticket, especially, <laughs> uh, um, was, a, was a really big thing. And I always remember when I was sort of, again, sort of stuck writing my first book and children's author called Tom Palmer who kind of encouraged me to do it and wanted me to do it and he um he's uh, he's uh lives in Yorkshire and he um he's had emailed me and said are you writing that book I told you to write and I said no and he said do you want me to bully you I said yes please and anyway so I went up to see him and I went to Manchester station I went to a library he was doing a library event in Eccles library and I went to watch his library event and he does this thing. He writes books about football and then he takes these kind of goals and people make score goals. It sounds a bit bonkers, but it's just wondrous. Sounds and great. I just loved being in Eccles Library and there were these two delightful girls. I don't know how old they were, maybe like eight and ten. Um, and they were so uh, sort of beautiful and attentive and well-behaved. And the, I was chatting to the library librarian. He told me they just they go they're they're in there all the time when they're not in school on their own. She doesn't know what the thing is with the parents, but they just I want to start crying. They just turn up, and the older sister's always looking after the younger sister, and they just spend all day in the library. And then you think, well, oh. you hope that's like for good reasons, and maybe it's for sad reasons. But it mm. to me, I think libraries are so much more than the books. It's like the books would be enough, but they're also the space where the books are. And then I think yep. it's also safe, almost safe as anywhere is libraries. I feel the same with bookshops as well. Whenever I go to town with my son, I say to him, like, if anything goes wrong with phones and stuff, just go to the bookshop and we'll we'll like have it as our That's rendezvous. We'll you, you couldn't go yeah. wrong, could you? Sending someone to a no. library or a bookshop would be a sort of a safe thing to do. And so we we did the event in Eccles Library and I watched Tom do his thing, which is talk about books with children, including those that didn't think they were interested in books and now they do because they've scored a goal. And then we went and sat in the we sat on Manchester Manchester train station in the calf for four hours, where he just continually kept saying to me, "Give me another reason why you're not writing this book." And we went through every single one, and he told me not to worry about it and sent me off. And then I wrote my book, and I still think what a again what a huge act of kindness on his part. Um, mm. So he's kind of. That's the thing, isn't it, with libraries? It's the libraries, it's the books, and then it's the people. It's kind of this, mm. this, all this sort of stuff fits together really brilliantly. Oh, I love those two two stories, and you know, we could do a whole separate episode of this podcast just talking about libraries, couldn't we? Because and and the wonder of them. Um, but I wanted to bring it up 
partly Ruth because uh, having read your book I was thinking about libraries and I've and I've just finished doing this project with the BBC for their sort of um, novels that shaped our world list and we've been championing libraries and hearing lots of great stories so that's brilliant to hear both of yours um, and we will continue to champion yes. them and talk about them yes. before we do the book off I always like to ask my guests what they've been reading and enjoying recently always love to hear recommendations don't have to be brand new just something that you know you might have read over the last couple of months is there something Ruth that you would like to sort of tell us about and recommend absolutely um well there are you know when I'm when I'm writing um it's it's very hard for me to read a lot you know Um, Mm. and which is why when I've finished a book um it's it's just wonderful because I can kind of plunge in and read a lot of books that um, you know that are uh, looking for endorsements, right? I mean, blurbing is just is part of what we do because we want to help mm-hmm. promote wonderful new books. Um, but it's hard to do when you're, you know, when when I'm in the middle of of writing a book, right? So as soon as I finish writing, you know, then I start to read, you know, the the pile of you know unpublished manuscripts on my desk, um, and I have just found some amazing ones um and and several of these are young writers who i who i do know um the first book that i'll mention is coming out very shortly um i'm not sure i don't think any of these have been published yet because all i've been reading recently is manuscripts but (laughs) these are going to be published very very soon so the first one is um woman eating by a wonderful british writer named claire coda and it's the story of a um, it's a story of a um, mixed race vampire um, who has kind of an eating disorder and is trying to find a way of stay, uh, sustaining herself and staying alive without hurting anyone. Um, and she has a she has a mother who um, who has dementia who's um, forgotten that she's a vampire and and so it's about this young girl who is just in this you know this this half vampire who is um, in in this very difficult situation um, and is very very hungry right um, so that's one book that I would I would completely recommend sounds it's, fab it's wonderful <laughs> it's a, it's just it's you know it's funny it's beautifully written I mean Claire is just a gorgeous gorgeous writer and mm. it's beautifully written and it's it's funny but it's also sad it's got you know wonderful sort of you know very keen social observation it, it's it's really fantastic um, and can I do another one can I slip another one in here? Of course. Okay, good. Because this is another young writer, another debut novel um, by a young um, uh, uh, American woman um, named Layla Motley. And I have to admit, this is full disclosure, um, I, I, I also know Layla. Um, and Layla was a student of mine at Smith. Um, and I, ah. yeah, and her book is called Night Crawling. And again, it is just so powerful. Layla is one of these young writers who is going to, you know, I mean, remember the name because, you know, she is going to be uh, a very, very important writer. It's a story of a young black woman um, who uh, whose mother is in prison and who is trying to support um, herself and her brother and who takes to the streets in order to do this and runs into and this is in Oakland California and finds herself in the middle of a, uh, a ring of, um, of uh, police corruption um, and uh, I, you know I don't want to say more about it because I don't want to spoil it mm-hmm. but Layla is also a, um, a poet and you can see this in her writing she was the youth poet laureate of the city of Oakland California which is where she's from um, and she's got wonderful videos uh, of her you know uh, reciting her poetry online um, and she's just she's really you know she's spectacular so these two these two young writers Claire Coda and Layla Motley um, are, are just names to remember because they are the next generation and I'm so proud of both of them. Fantastic. Oh, thank you, Ruth. Lovely recommendations. What about you, Kathy? What have you been reading and enjoying recently that we should know about? Well, I've been trying to get on with my own novel and I do, oh. I, it is a bit like Ruth says. It's so, I just want to read books all the time, but I can't, I can't read. <laughs> you can't. 
I, I mean, I do feel well when I'm doing industrial levels of reading, but I can't do industrial levels of reading and write at the same time because I do need to, you know, my head just feels so full. So I've actually been reading a cookbook um, and I actually really mm. like reading. So, so I, but, but the thing is, reading's really essential to me. So I also can't not read. But if I read too much new fiction, I don't do any writing of my own. So I'm always trying to, so I, I reread a lot. I reread kind of like crime series. Um, reread Agatha Christie and stuff, but yeah. equally, I thought, well, I'll read this cookbook. Um, so it's called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. It's been out for a while. I think it's massive. You know, I'm it's late great. to the party of it, but it's just so joyous, and the prose yeah. is so lovely. And there's something. Um, so she's called Samin Nosrat. I think she was born in the states, but her parents left Iran like on the eve of the resolution. So there's quite a lot about her mother making Persian food. Um, and the writing's beautiful. So she's talking about salt, fat, acid, heat as the important ingredients of cooking. And there's, I don't know, there's something, I always like anything where it's that idea that there are some ingredients to this. Mm. Um, so there's something about it that sort of metaphorically pleases me in a way that I don't fully understand. <laughs> I find it very, if I read this book, it then somehow makes me want to write my novel, which has nothing to do with cookery or America or Iran wow. or salt or acid or fat or heat. But something <laughs> about reading this book kind of sharpens my sharpens my fingers. So, um, yeah, I just really like it. And I, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I loved it too. And when I first got it, um, and I was very lucky, I got... I got um, given a copy of it and thought oh I don't know if I need another cookery book but you're right it's uh, it's such a joy to read and uh, I tell you what when I read it I just wanted to eat all the time that's the <laughs> that's, that's what it did for me well funny enough I'm finding that I'm taking great sm small I, I, so I've also if I mention my second book before I tell you I also feel so I've been reading Perma Children um, I feel I mangled her name a bit there. Did I say it right? No, that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the book I've been reading is Living Beautifully, and I like it especially because it is an American edition, and American books are a bit different than English books. It's got those sort of rough edges. I'm never sure what they're officially called, but I like American books. Um, and I do find that I'm more and more interested in reading kind of any sort of religious re reflection or books about how to live um, and I felt very drawn to this and I'm flicking through my copy now there's lots of underlinings I read it in the bath whenever I feel overwhelmed <laughs> and I find she just helps me uh, centre myself um, but also because I've been thinking about again because I've been thinking about um, I guess how to be more mindful and present reading the, the salt for acid heat book I haven't tried to cook anything from it but I'm getting sort of rather immense pleasure out of cutting up a tomato and then sprinkling a <laughs> tiny little bit of salt on it <laughs> and then like adding a basil leaf and then like a, Lovely. a dribble of olive oil and you know no bit of chili no heat on this one I'm just, you know I'm not cooking this I just, you know and I'm, and I'm basically blissing myself out over one tomato and feeling very very grateful for the tomato and the salt and the the acid and the uh, fat that's going on in this little meal. So it feels like um, both those books are giving me a lot of uh, a lot of pleasure. <laughs> yes, they are. Oh, fantastic! I love that. I love that. What a range of books! Thank you both uh, for those recommendations. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And it's time for another recommendation because it's time now for the book off where each of you is going to tell us about a book you love that you think we should definitely all read you're going to get three minutes uninterrupted if you need all three uh, to tell us about these books um, but if you're still talking at the three minute mark I'm either going to be honking you out with the bicycle horn or ringing you out with the school bell now Ruth because you're uh, tr- technically traveling the furthest today you get to choose whether you go first or or second, which would you prefer? Um, I think I will go first. Alrighty. Which means, Kathy, you get to decide which of these awful noisy things are going to interrupt you at three minutes. Would you like the, the honk or the bell? Oh, well, as a barmaid, I want the bell. I love a last order's bell. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, you get the bell. <laughs> and, Ruth, you're going to get the bicycle horn. Uh, now, just before we um, put the three minutes on the clock, Ruth, why don't you just tell us the book that you're putting forward? Okay, I am putting forward a book called Booth by, uh, by the author, by the novelist Karen Joy Fowler. Um, Fantastic. And- uh, Fowler Karen is the um, author of We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, um, which was the Booker uh, shortlisted um, uh, book that came out in ni- uh, sorry, 2014, I think. Um, and, yeah. yeah. I've got the three minutes ready on the clock here, so it's uninterrupted for you if you want to use them all, Ruth, to tell us all about Booth. Over to you. Okay. So Booth is a novel about the family of Junius Brutus Booth, um, the famous Shakespearean actor, drunker, and bigamist. Um, Booth was born in London, started his career there as an actor, and rose quickly to fame. He rivaled, you know, Edmund Keane um, on the stage in in London. He married, um, had a child. He met a young flower girl and they ran off to America with her. He ran off to America with her and then proceeded to have 10 illegitimate children. So that's the background, okay? The novel itself focuses on four of these illegitimate children. Edwin Booth, who was the most famous Shakespearean actor of his generation, um, whose reputation surpassed even his father. Um, Booth's two daughters, Rosalie and Asia, and the most famous, I should say infamous, of the uh, Booth children, John Wilkes Booth, the man who assassinated Abraham Lincoln. So I just want to be very clear about this right from the start. Booth is a masterpiece, and I mean it. It is truly extraordinary. Um, I think it is Karen's uh, most important, most powerful, and most heartbreaking book yet, and here's why. Um, The story is completely riveting. I mean, you might think you know about the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln, but you've never imagined it told like this. Um, It has everything you could possibly want from a novel. It's got a domineering patriarch and bitterly rival, you know, rivaling um, siblings. I mean, it's you know, kind of like succession in that way. Um, it's got war, it's got insurrection, it's got bigamy, it's got lust, it's got drunkenness and general bad behavior, you know, wealth, celebrity, glamour, the whole thing. Um, the Booths knew everyone. They knew, you know, Byron, they knew Shelley, they knew Edgar Allan Poe, Walt Whitman. I mean, you know, they were, they really were high up in society. Um, the historical world of the novel is just rich and marvelous. Um, it's concerned with very, very serious social issues, um, slavery, institutionalized racism, class, insurrection, all of these things that are you know, more and more timely, um, certainly in the United States these days. Um, the characters of the Booths, this family, they are just so weird. I mean, they are larger than life and it's just so compelling. And, you know, this is the other thing. I mean, it's an incredibly suspenseful novel. 
you know how it's going to end. There's no question about how this is going to end. It's going to end in tragedy, but yet you're reading it, you know, and it's just a page turning book because, you know, you're, you just want to get to that moment. What I think is so interesting about this is that it's an epic, it's an epic novel, but the way it's told is anti-epic. Right, in that it's almost it's told in a way that almost questions the notion of what an epic can be. And what I mean by that is, um, Karen has cho told has chosen to tell the story from the point of <laughs> from the point of view of peripheral characters, and that's what one of the things that makes it so interesting. I thought I was going to get a warning at least. <laughs> I just I was so I was so engrossed with that Ruth and I kept checking the timer and then I was looking at your face there over over yeah. our screen and I was thinking oh she's got loads more to say and I felt so bad You're doing good. that I'm but... glad you felt bad because I do have so much more to say but the thing is is that um I, I really did think that I was going to get like a you know a little bit of a warning but that's okay that's okay oh no no warning no <laughs> it's just, awful it's brutal it's, this is brutal just cut down in your prime oh it's awful god. isn't it oh my god that was a wonderful pitch, um, and God, I've got so many questions. Yeah, We're going to come back and, and talk about it uh, in just a moment, oh, but you can have a breather now because uh, Kathy's stepping up to the plate for her three minutes. And just before we set the timer going, Kathy, tell us the book that you're putting forward. I want to talk about My Name Is Why by Lem Sisse. Ah, oh, wonderful! All right, three minutes on the clock. Then over to you to tell us about My Name Is Why. So this is a memoir written by Lem Sisse, who was a poet, and it talks about how he was, um, had a childhood in a foster family and then lived in care homes. And I love the way that he just has so humanity, so much humanity in telling his story. Um, and he uses a lot of documentation all the way through it. He managed to get his file. So we see the things that the social workers are saying about him as he tells the story. Um, and he, I mean, awful things happen to him. Not, I mean, the like nobody knows how to um, comb his hair. His mother's Ethiopian and he has black hair, but nobody knows how to treat his hair. So his hair is all, his head is always very sore because his foster mother is always, uh, oh, it gives me the shivers to think about it, running this very, very thin comb through his hair. Um, you can see how he is talked about and discussed in these school reports. But sometimes people notice his sort of extraordinary talent and creativity, but often people criticise him. Um, it's a very moving story because people, are, again, you see just kind of slightly don't know how to deal with him. And so much of what's beautiful and imaginative about him is perceived in a really negative way. Um, just racism, obviously. And he, I love the first line of it, which I will read you, which is that he says, at 14, I tattooed the initials of what I thought was my name into my hand. So the very, it's about how he doesn't really know who he is, but even to the extent that he doesn't know what his name is. But he does find things out. He does solve mysteries. And he, um, we leave him and he's living in Poets Corner, a new housing development. He manages to get rehoused. There are some, there, it's not all villains either. And you definitely feel it's part of, his humanity, that he has an eye out for people who are helpers. And he's generous on the page, I think, given everything that happens to him. So he ends up in Poet's Corner. Somebody gives him a typewriter. And the uh, and it sort of ends really beautifully. There's a lot of forgiveness. And he, I love what he says about memoir writing. He said about this book that he started thinking he needed to settle some scores, but he really thinks that all memoirs are about love. And certainly this one is. And I think there's just so much... Um, there's a lot, a lot of the things that I think you want for a memoir, which is there's a lot of detail. It really evokes an era. Um, but also I find it really compelling when people can tell a story in which difficult things happen, but can do so with humanity and compassion to everybody involved. I mean, a humanity and passion that is above and beyond the call of duty. I don't mean that he should be feeling sorry for the other people, but I think the fact that he manages to be able to mm. makes this a really transcendent experience. So that's my shout. Fantastic. Four seconds left to spare, Cathy. Oh, so you were you know, brought it right in on the uh, under the wire. Um, thank you both. Wow, goodness. What a, a, a set of amazing pitches. Um, Lem Sisse was on uh, Book Off a couple of series ago, Cathy, um, and we talked about 
My Name Is Why when it was published and what a what a wonderful book that you've really brought to light there. Um, Ruth, if I could just come back and, and, and talk about your uh, book off suggestion, um, Booth. Now, I know of Karen Joy Fowler and I read her book, a shortlisted novel. Um, this, however, just sounds amazing. Um, you you were talking 100 miles an hour and you still had more to say, you know, which is amazing. Um, I love the fact that you you have called this you've called it a masterpiece and a truly extraordinary piece of writing and novel um and what i think is amazing about the pitch that you gave us is that is that you say you you might think you know about the lincoln assassination and you might sort of assume that you know where it's going but actually it's still suspenseful and it's got rivaling siblings war insurrection lust you know all those things you mentioned and i'm just totally hooked <laughs> good good is it a big book um it, it it's not it is a big book yes it's a big book it's it's not an unwieldy book by any means um you know i was you know karen is a friend and and we were talking at one point about you know about our books and and you know because we both understand that there are drawbacks to writing big big fat books you know and so we were both you know think you know really trying hard to to cut and um but you mm. know and I, I had read hers and she'd read mine and in any case i mean it all i'm trying to say here is that there isn't you know it, it's a book about the details of the family's life the booth family life and it's not even told from the point of view you know of john wilkes it's told from the point of view mm. of the um you know the the siblings right edwin rosalie yep. and asia and um and that's what makes it so interesting is that it's told from the point of view of these peripheral characters and karen has a whole you know karen didn't want to write a book about john wilkes booth what she wanted to write was a book about the family of somebody who does something so heinous Right. And the, you know, and the, the fallout, on, you know, in the family. And I think that's what makes it, you know, uh, uh, you know, it is both an epic, but it is also kind of an anti-epic because. I love that. Anti-epic. Yeah. Epics are about <laughs> central, you know, historical figures. Right. And this is not. Mm. Um, and, and so these are the, and Karen, of course, is, you know, it, it sounds like such a, um, uh, you know, it, it is such a, uh, a huge um, topic, right? And it could so easily be, um, you know, sort of overblown and hyperbolic and maudlin. But, you know, if you, you've read Karen's work, you know that her mm. language is um, just so subtle and so precise and very dry. And, you know, she has a, a genius for kind of dry wit and, and understatement. Right. And, yeah. and so it's, you know, the, the story is controlled in just such a, you know, a, a beautiful way. Um, so no, it does not feel like a, it, it feels like a big book in terms of its, you know, subject matter and theme, but and scope, certainly, yeah, yeah. you know, it, it, you know, in terms of the pace of reading it, I just, I, I just, you know, couldn't put it down. Um, I thought it was. And fantastic. I don't know whether it's, I don't know whether I'm doing myself down in the competition by admitting <laughs> this, but I also think it's a masterpiece. I thought it was wonderful. Uh, you read it. <laughs> right and and it shows how much i like it because this this might mean i lose and i don't yeah. care i'd rather i'd rather add my add my endorsement and my voting i thought it was spectacular. two calls for masterpiece yeah. and everything that Ruth has said about it is completely true but the other thing yeah. i'd add as well from a british perspective is i do like a novel that also teaches me things. thank you and yes. i yes. think you know, I think, under, and also I don't think, I don't think, I mean, I want to understand America more. I need to understand about America. I need to understand the legacy of slavery, which I've been feeling increasingly over the last few years is surely like one of the big, huge issues of our time and doesn't, uh, you know, and is only becoming more pressing. And of course mm. I don't, as most of us, I think, don't understand. Um, and I did feel that this book, in a, in the lightest of ways, I don't, it, it's a complete, not, you know, it's a novel, it's not a difficult novel, it's not a hard novel, um, it zips along, as we famously say, but it also I did feel, I, you know, my understanding of America was expanded. Um, I thought right. it was really compassionate as well. And again, it, actually, some of the things I was saying about the Lem Sisse book, like, you know, there are bits in it when people help people, 
where you you kind of are surprised they're going to help them. You think you kind of think, well, how you know their their belief system shouldn't lead them to help this person, but they do. Mm. Um, yeah, I think it's just wonderful, wondrous. Oh wow! And as is my name is White, a very different book, obviously in in that it, it's it's not fiction. Um, but when Lem came to talk about it, I was just so engrossed, not only in the book when I'd read it before talking to him, but in his sort of his stories around it and you're so right Kathy about it being you know that it there's a lot of forgiveness in the book and that's what really stuck out for me because it is such a moving story but also evokes that era and you know tells a lot about what was going on in the UK um but it's so well written as well isn't it and just just a, a sort of fascinating story and I think it it has helped me having read it now when I read his other work you know it's really sort of enhanced that for me as well um yeah so another fabulous pitch and that is a book I do know and I would highly recommend it um but goodness me uh, that is a tough call for me isn't it having listened to you both yeah that's really tough I know I've I've got to go with Booth. I've got to go with Booth on this occasion because, and and that's thanks to Kathy in a way who's 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 made that a bit easier for me. But I will say this, as I said in the book off episode with Lem Sisse and the wonderful Brett Anderson, you must read My Name Is White too. It's a it's a fabulous fabulous book, and um, Lem is a a wonderful wonderful person. Oh, yeah. it sounds wonderful. The Story of Form and Emptiness by Ruth Azeki is out now, as is Time Code of a Face. They're both published by the fabulous Canongate. And Write It All Down by Kathy Rensabrink is out now, published by Bluebird. And what an absolute pleasure it's been spending this time with you both. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your recommendations. Thank you for just a lovely chat. It's been really lovely to see you both. Thank you Thanks so much, Joe. It's been a complete treat. So much fun. Thank When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.